0: Okay, let's go to Acts chapter 15 and continue our study of the book of Acts chapter uh, verse, or chapter 15. Um, you know, guys, rarely, if ever, do I ever leave the pulpit on um, on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, and um, without some kind of regret. You know, gosh, I wish I'd have done that better. Oh, I wish I'd have changed that. I wish I'd have said this. I mean, I don't know that I ever leave a pulpit without some kind of regret of having not done it the way I wish I had, but um, I can say that um, I I had a particular sense of, gosh, I wish I could go back and and, uh, do that better last week, last Wednesday night, so what I want to try to do as I begin tonight is repair some of the damage that I did and try to um, clarify some of the the, uh, confusion that I may have created. This text, Acts chapter 15, I want you to understand describes an event. An event that occurred in the life of the church. The event was spawned because there was a theological issue that uh, was raised that caused quite a controversy. um, What I tried to do last week is show you what was at stake, and uh, and at least we accomplished that, I think. But I think I confused you as to what all is going on here. Let me read verse 1 for you again. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, um, i tell you what. Let's go ahead and read the next four verses. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, "'It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses.'" Now, guys, um, as a result of this theological emphasis that was being made by a certain sect of Pharisees, um, a dispute erupts. And Paul takes on this whole um, um, movement or this whole group because he sees it as a threat to the gospel. And so what I tried to point out last week is... um, is what was at stake, and you'll notice it's contained in verse 1, where he, he said, these brethren, what they're teaching is, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So the stakes are, what is the gospel? How do we define it? How do we understand it? How do we preach it? What does it contain? Now, here's what I'd like to add. I want to add a couple of things tonight, but um, I want you to notice in verse 5, uh, this note. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, guys, here's the first observation about verse 5. Number one, you will notice that these are converted ex Pharisees. Their, their, their past, their recent past, was that they were Pharisees. But we are told that they are Pharisees who believed. That's important, ladies and gentlemen, because heretofore, the church had been fighting battles uh, that arose from without. And so they were defending themselves from the onslaughts and the assaults of all of the godless uh, emphases that, uh, that were around them. Now, the battle is not on the outside coming in. The battle is on the inside. These are brethren teaching brethren. And the brethren (laughs) are teaching brethren it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. That's brethren teaching that. Now, gang, um, the them, of course, is the converted Gentiles. Um, and so it was this emphasis that uh, erupted into a full-fledged controversy in the church. To solve or to deal with this controversy, a convention, a council, a um, a meeting is called, to meet in Jerusalem. And so what you have in, in Acts chapter 15 is a record of the first ecumenical council that is called by the Christian church, it's called the Council at Jerusalem, and that Council at Jerusalem was was organized, was necessitated by a group of converted people who were teaching error in the church. Now, this is not to deal with Islam. It's not to deal with Jehovah's Witnesses, those guys on the Alps. No, 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 no. no. This is an emphasis that had grown up within the, the, the company of God's people. And the emphasis was purely, completely legal. That is, you tell them that they can't, this is in verse 1, that you'll not be saved unless you're circumcised. And then added to that in verse 5 is this other emphasis of, okay, yes, sir, it's necessary to be circumcised. But it's also necessary that they keep, be commanded to keep the law of Moses. Now, that's the, that's the controversy. And, um, you know, I, I said last week, I got into this, which is something I always love to get into in verse two therefore when paul and barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them now guys that's what's called a euphemism you know what a euphemism is a euphemism is a nice way of saying something uh, that if you said it another way it wouldn't be nice when he says no small dispute Uh, no no small dissension and dispute that's a nice way to say these guys were at each other's throats now, and as a result of this, this dispute that takes place, they, they say, Okay, we're not going to solve this among us, so let's get everybody together down in Jerusalem, and we'll straighten that thing out there. Now, guys, that's the event. And then you're going to see some speeches that take place at that event, that council in Jerusalem. Then you're going to see the, the, the conclusion, the decision that they make. Then you're going to see a letter that they write to send to all the churches. And that's, that's what Acts chapter 15 is. But you will note that this is an intramural squabble. Now, and guys, guys at, at its very, very least, what it would have ended up as, is that we would have a first and second class citizen in the church. That is, you got the, you got the saved circumcised, but you got the saved uncircumcised. I mean, that, at very best, that's what it would have been. But at worst... It is an assault on the purity and the simplicity of a gospel that simply states, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now, another thing that I did last week that I felt was confusing is that I alluded to something in the book of Galatians. And that's what I want you to see tonight. I want to go back to the book of Galatians because, now guys, now stay with me. You know that... um, Paul writes a letter to the Galatian church, but he is not the author of the book of, Lu- uh, me, the book of Luke. He is not the author of the book of Acts. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. Luke is giving you this record in Acts 15 of this council in Jerusalem. Now, Paul tells the story in a vastly different way. He leaves out lots of the details that Luke gives us, but he gives you um, what takes place. In Galatians chapter Two, and I want to read that to you now understand what i 'm saying i'm, I'm going to, in a minute here since I get to reading this i 'm going to try i 'm going to attempt to put together some kind of chronology for you a sequence of events and how they unfolded that's very difficult to do, ladies and gentlemen, and I probably won't get it exactly right, but i 'm going to try to put it together in terms of but what acts excuse me what Galatians two is Is Paul referencing, at least in part, the same event that we read about in Acts 15? Okay, you got that? Now let's read Galatians 2, beginning at verse 1. We're going to read 14 verses. And again, this is the record of some of the events that occurred in the life of Paul. Then... After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, Titus who was being a Greek was compelled to be circumcised. Now, now guys, this verse 4 is very relevant for Acts 15. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal vapor, favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me for the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John... Who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles that they, and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews... Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Now, guys, I hope you can see some similarities there. Let me see if I can kind of piece it together for you, because what you've got here is a reference to the at least the same period that is being discussed in Acts 15. First of all, look at Galatians 2.1. And if you've still got your Bible open to Acts 15, we're going to flip back and forth for a minute. Galatians 2.1. Um... <clears throat> After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. He's referring to a trip to Jerusalem that took place after 14 years. What I'm suggesting is the same trip that is mentioned in Acts 15.2, where he says, after that dispute, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem. That trip in 15.2 is the same trip that he's referring to in Galatians 2.1. right. Number two. If you'll notice in verse 4 of Galatians 2, the false brethren that he mentions. They're the same guys that are mentioned in Acts 15.1 when it says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, etc. By the way, they've been given a name. They're called Judaizers. Their attempt was to to judify the church. I just made up a word, I think, but they were trying to to um, you know to make the church more Jewish. Uh, but the ones that he that Luke mentions in 15.1 are the ones that Paul mentions in Galatians 2.4. Now, this private meeting that takes place between Paul and the pillars of the church apparently takes place Sometime prior to the Jerusalem council that's described in Acts 15 and chapter 15. So he, he, here's, here's kind of the sequence. Are you ready? Paul gets converted in all that business, and then at one, some point, he, he has a, uh, a private meeting with these guys, and he gets um, approval that uh, he's supposed to be sent to the Gentiles. In between that meeting and the council of, the, of Jerusalem in Acts 15, Peter um, becomes somewhat of a hypocrite. That's the word he's used here. And Paul confronts him face to face. And then in that same time period, these Judaizers are out trying to Jewify the church. And so Paul gets in a fight with them. And they say, okay, we need to settle this once and for all. And the Jerusalem council is called. Okay. (laughs) You got all that? Now, guys, because there's there's a lot of um, I think fun stuff that you can that you can derive about this story in Acts 15, if you understand that what Galatians 2 is doing is pretty much the same thing. Now, that's kind of the sequence. I, I hope it was somewhat clear for you. Now, now what I want to do, now that you understand the event is to solve a problem at a big council in Jerusalem, and the event is also being alluded to in some way in Galatians 2. What I want to do now is get back and take a look uh, as we unfold the text. Now, guys, may I say that there are there are two big issues that are at stake in, Galat- in Acts 15. First of all, uh, defining the gospel for the whole church. The other thing has to do with church government of all things. Now, I know that you've got about as much interest in church government as... As uh, you do in the latest hockey puck, but guys, uh, church government—I heard Chuck Swindoll say one day—is one of those necessary evils, and I agree with him. I, 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 it's very descriptive. It's a necessary evil. It's a—it's um, a thing that without—I mean—a a, a church without it is going to end up in chaos. So there has to be some general framework of government within a church where she'll ever work um... i was uh, <laughs> I better not give that. but um, uh... so th- that's that's an issue but that's a far less important issue indeed than the definition of the gospel that's what we're going to spend most of our time on but we're going to spend a moment or two at least tonight on this this church government thing because you do get some kind of hints ...as to how the church is to run as a result of Acts chapter 15. Okay? All right. So we're back to... Um, uh, we looked at verse 1 last week. Uh, that is, I tried to tell you, show you what was at stake. The, uh, the Judaizers are tampering with the gospel and saying, This is the only way that men are going to be saved. Yeah, 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 they got to have Jesus, but they've got to be circumcised too. And I said to you last week, when you start tampering with that gospel, you start adding anything to it, like baptism, like confirmation, like anything else, you, ladies and gentlemen, are in line to get the same kind of uh, violent response from the Apostle Paul as he gives to Peter over in Galatians chapter 2. You know, you got this, I said this last week, but this public squabble going on between the two leaders of the church, Peter and Paul, fighting out in the streets. What a, what a lovely picture that is. But... Paul was often conciliatory. He, he wanted to accommodate when he could. But when this, when something as, when the souls of men were at stake, Paul became an iron pillar. A flaming iron pillar at that. Okay, so you have this dispute that erupts because these guys are teaching trash. Uh, the, the dispute in verse 2. And uh, they determined. This is where we kind of pick up. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others, which, by the way, Galatians tells us, Titus was involved. The certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. By the way, leap down to verse 6 with me real quick. Now, the apostles and elders. Now, first of all, guys, that's a a kind of a, a church government word. You know, the apostles and the elders. By the way, I want you to see something else in verse 22 of Acts 15. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church. Now, my point is this. Over in verse 2 and verse 6, you see the apostles and the elders mentioned. But in verse 22, we are told that this meeting in Jerusalem is far, far bigger than the apostles and the elders. The whole church is there. The whole church has sent representatives to this big meeting over in Jerusalem because something very important is at stake. All right? So the apostles and the elders, um, uh, verse 2, are mentioned, and we'll, we'll look at that in a minute. But, so being sent on their way, that is, they're, they're simply taking a trip to Jerusalem for this meeting, and they pass through certain areas, and they, um, they talk about how many Jews, uh, Gentiles have been converted, and everybody's happy about it. Then verse uh, 4, uh, they, they get to Jerusalem, they received well, and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. All right. And then we come to verse 5, as we've already looked at briefly. But um, some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to uh, circumcise and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, guys, I've already said this. that uh, the, The thing that is so grievous and so contemporary and so irrelevant is that something similar to this exists in the 21st century church. Converted people. In many instances. Some, remember we talked last week about a toxic legalism and a non-toxic legalism? Well, apparently, this is of the non-toxic variety. It is described in verse 5 as people who believed. And I think that would um, lead us to believe that we're talking about ex-Pharisees who um, are converted, but bring all of their legal ways into the church with them. With a kind of a misunderstanding of what the gospel really is, but having truly embraced the Savior. Guys, um, there is a sense in which deliverance or conversion happens in a day. <laughs> but transformation takes place over a lifetime. I mean, uh, and I, I don't mean this literally, but there's a sense in which conversion is easy. I don't mean that. I mean, it's always God's Spirit's work that converts anybody. But that's easy. But the the problem is that people come into the kingdom converted, but bringing all of this terrible baggage along with them. And the thing that every one of us brought with us, Every one of us some worse than others (laughs) brought into the kingdom is this propensity to build our worth and value based on performance. I said that last week. That is, we're all trained in a culture that tells us if you're ever going to make if you're ever going to count for much in this in this world, you're going to have to earn it. You know, a man's worth is salt. A man's got to do what a man's got to do. All this business about, you know, keep your nose clean and and, and work hard and get a good education and uh, and you'll be rewarded. Uh, put a nickel in and you can get a nickel's worth out. And and um, if I've heard this once, I've heard it. I expect a hundred pennies worth for every dollar. Because I'm, you know, it, it, this whole mentality about I get what I deserve, I get what I earn. And, that's where we're all trained. Now, how old were you when you were converted? Huh? Well, I was 22. For 22 years, that got pounded into me. That um, all of life is based on performance. Well, I'm saying, here's another group of guys in Acts chapter 5 who were trained in a similar culture. And they say, well, okay, I understand this gospel. I believe it in Jesus. But they come into the kingdom and, they say, and immediately they begin to teach. You got to keep the law of Moses, and you got to be circumcised if you're ever going to be saved. Isn't that interesting? We got that happening all over the evangelical world, ladies and gentlemen. Things being added to the gospel in one way or the other—little things here, big things there, little thing, you know, um, just items by which we t- we seek. To prove our worth, that are nothing more than additions to the gospel. For instance, um, I believe in Jesus. I became a Christian, but I'm um, I'm really um, I'm really uh, spiritual because I speak in tongues. I mean, that's just a, just one small another version of. What we find unfolding before is people trying to tamper with the gospel, people trying to turn it into something that it it isn't. Now, that's what you find. These are converted men who are very used to legalism, and they bring their legalism, they bring their law, they bring their performance mentality into the kingdom. Like I say, it's very easy to get people converted. It just takes a lifetime to kick that stuff out of them. Where they begin to enjoy the beauties and the freshness of grace. Where we understand that it is not our performance. Guys, I'm, 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 um, I'm digressing for a moment. But anytime you have to have something other than the beauties of Jesus Christ and what He's done. Anytime you've got to have something in addition to that. You're in bondage. You're you're a slave to it. If you have to have something beyond the provisions of Christ Jesus, you're a, you're a slave. The only freedom that any of us are ever going to enjoy is the freedom of simply enjoying the uh, the, the the beauty of our being joined evermore to Christ Jesus. And that's what you heard a little bit about on Sunday morning. All right. Well, let me let me. That's kind of the um, uh, the first five verses, you'll see at least what the, what the issue is. But now, I've I got 11 minutes left. Let me, let me kind of address this church government thing and get it out of the way. Because it's, um, um, it is an issue in the Christian church, ladies and gentlemen. Books are written about Acts chapter 15 and how they affect For instance, Roman Catholics love Acts 15. Could you understand why? Because what you've got is um, a hierarchical form of church government where the decisions are made at the top and pressed down to everybody else. That's what's taking place here, ladies and gentlemen. That's what's taking place here. Uh, the churches and all, they're scattered in a little, and the countryside, send a representative to this meeting in Jerusalem. There's the decision made, and then it's spread back out to the grassroots. That's why the Roman Catholic Church loves this this thing here. Um, I can say to you, um, it does indeed contain hierarchical dimensions to it. It very definitely does that. Which would mean that congregational forms of church government are pretty much absent from the New Testament. Now, but what I want to suggest to you is that what is uh, mentioned here is a, is a government by apostles and elders. Now, guys, um, uh, apostles don't exist anymore. Uh, apostles are defunct. But the office of elder is not. The office of elder is the office to which the leadership and government making, uh, governmental and decision-making uh, actions uh, are, grant, are given to these guys. Called, they're called presbyters. Does that sound like anything to anybody? It does to a die-hard Presbyterian like me. Ladies and gentlemen, the word presbyters is the word that you find in verse 2 and in verse 6. Translated, Elders. I've told you this before. When you say Jimmy Young is a Presbyterian, you are not referring to my theology. You are referring to my government. Now, but we don't have a Presbyterian form of government at Gracie Ben. It was certainly not purely. But we do have a government by elders, now I want to show you one little insight to what we do and where it came from, and then I'm finished for the night. And then we'll come back and look at the the convention itself. Or the yeah. How about turning with me to First Timothy chapter four? I want to show you why we do some of the things that we do and the reasons uh, here in. Um, uh, wait a minute. Um. First Timothy chapter yes there it is First Timothy chapter five verse seventeen all right guys notice uh, the text First Timothy five seventeen let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. All right, now that text, there's, there's several others that can contribute to our conversation, but we have uh, seven minutes left. So uh, let me just show you how this text has been borne out and fleshed out among us. Now, the reason I'm doing this, ladies and gentlemen, is because what you see in Acts chapter 15 is a government by apostles and elders. Apostles don't exist, but elders do. So what is the job of elders? You will notice in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders... Who? What's that next word? Role. Ladies and gentlemen, in 21st century America, nobody likes that word. Nobody likes that word. Um, They want, I mean, we're in such an individualistic culture. Uh, Americanism is opposed to authority from the top. America is told to rebel at all authority. But ladies and gentlemen, if there is one word that summarizes and tells you the role of an elder, it is what word? Role. The role of ruling has been placed into, a gr- into the hands of a group of men whose name the Bible gives as Elders. They rule. And, um, you know, people say, um, for instance, just one quick application. Um, um, well, I don't think, um, I want to be, well, I'm a member of that church, but I'm not going to, uh, I don't think you have to go to a, a, a worship service to, to be a Christian. Well, there's lots of problems with that. But here's one of the problems. Do you know that the elders of Grace Evangelical Church established that worship services take place here at 9750 Wolf River Boulevard at 925 and 1055 every Sunday morning. Now, for you to oppose that is to rebel at rule and to rebel at authority. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the one word that describes the function and purpose of elders is that they are to rule. Now, I want you to know that our eldership went through a long um, process of trying to figure out what does it mean to rule. (laughs) That was a fruitful discussion uh, of over seven or eight years. Um, uh, Because they take that so seriously, ladies and gentlemen. But gang, you've got to know that, that that this thing is not something that I thought up, nor did they think up. The New Testament placed in their hands a responsibility of ruling, and every time you and you say, "Well, they're a bunch of idiots," they sure are. I happen to be one of them, <laughs> and they're a bunch of idiots. But that doesn't change the fact of your responsibility. <laughs> because, ladies and gentlemen, you have been entrusted with another response. Can I point that out real quick? And then I'll do one other thing and I'll quit. Um, if I can find it real quick. I don't have it in my notes. In, in Hebrews chapter 13. There it is. Hebrews chapter 13. Can you find it real fast? Verse 7 says, Remember... Those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. So, look at verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch over your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now, you want a summary of your responsibility in response to the eldership? There it is. Guys, I didn't write that. But it does say, obey those and be submissive to those who rule over you because they're trying to watch out for your souls. They're a bunch of idiots. Well, yeah, they are. But when God the Holy Spirit moves in their brains, something better than idiocy occurs. And that's our hope, and that's our confidence that God the Holy Spirit will use a bunch of idiots. One other quick thing and I want to quit because i want i, I want I just want you to understand this back to that 1 Timothy five seventeen passage. I want you to notice something: there is a group of men and they're okay and their their function is that they rule all right now notice what the text goes on to say it says um Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Now, who would you say is a part of this group who labors in the word and doctrine? Me. (laughs) Now, I'm not the only one. I'm just saying. But a part of this group... The one who is has been identified as giving himself to laboring over the word and doctrine is a God by the name of Young. And if you want to see a real idiot, <laughs> he's one. But that one has been identified and he has been given another responsibility. His responsibility is word and doctrine. He belongs to this larger group. But... Um, His function is a a specific and particular one. He is to labor in word and doctrine. That means the function of ruling is in whose hands? These guys over here. Therefore, we have drawn a distinction between what we call a ruling elder and a teaching elder. Elder. And we're convinced that that distinction is made in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. He is a part of this bunch, but his primary responsibility is to labor. I only do it one day a week, you know. Labor in word and doctrine, while the ruling is assigned to another group of guys who are also called presbyteros. Now, Guys, I'm simply trying to point out something that's unique to Gracie Van, but it springs from a concern over the New Testament's instructions for government. A government that seems to be hierarchical, put in the hands of apostles and elders, but we don't have any more of those apostles, and so they must be put in the hands of elders. And then those elders are in charge are, are entrusted with the responsibility of ruling a congregation for the good and welfare of the and well-being and health of the souls of those entrusted to them. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know this, let me be the first to inform you. There are 13 men in this church who take that responsibility oh so seriously. We'll move along in the text next week. Our Father, we do thank You for Your Word, that it instructs us in in matters of life and doctrine. It even instructs us in the ways that we're supposed to put a church together. And so we're not left to ourselves, to our own devices. If so, Lord, we could probably probably bruise and dirty and besmudge even the bride of Christ. Prevent us from doing so, Father. Uh, For the leadership, I pray. And pray that you will give them energies and that you'll give them um, stamina to do their jobs with joy, with effectiveness, and with, with, um, uh, with great result. And I pray, Lord, that you will uh, take the rest of us, those who have been entrusted with another duty, another responsibility, and grant the fullness of the Holy Spirit for that task as well. Father, thank you for uh, the privilege to preach a gospel that says to men and women, Jesus Christ is our life. We pray, of course, in his name.